Hi, welcome back to Bullet Points. Today I'm speaking with Derek Smith, researcher and expert on deterrence and doctor of international relations from Oxford University, also author of Deterring America, a fantastic book, which I highly recommend. Thank you for being here, Derek. Happy to be here, Sebastian. Thank you. So first, just to start off with a general question. Um, how did you get interested in you know, the politics of deterrence and international relations? It evolved gradually from my work as an undergraduate when I majored in international relations and actually wrote my senior thesis on dual use satellite technologies of all things, which had a proliferation element and not so much a deterrence aspect, but really got me thinking about how countries interact with one another. And so when I was fortunate enough to go abroad for a few years in graduate school, this was a time when the United States was investigating missile defenses, was getting increasingly worried about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And as I researched a little bit into some of the theorists on deterrence theory, I started to realize that we were really in a different realm than the Cold War and that deterrence may not function in the same way when you're not dealing with the United States and the Soviet Union. And so I felt like I was at a unique period of time to look at it. And as it turned out, as I kind of discussed in the book, with especially the United States' interaction with Iraq and North Korea, it couldn't have been better timing to address the topic of how asymmetric countries try and perhaps fail to deter one another. Oh, wow, that is fascinating. Um, so just to you know, keep going with the general questions, what is deterrence and why is it so appealing as a strategy? So at its core, deterrence is a simple, I would say deceptively simple concept that means trying to persuade someone that the costs of an action will outweigh the benefits. And that's about as straightforward as it could be if you think about it. But then when you dig deeper, you realize that there's so many different aspects to that. And I, I try to discuss how there's sort of some sub facets to deterrence, such as compellence, where you're threatening punishment to actually spur action, which is a lot harder because when you try to convince someone that they shouldn't do something, they can always save face and say, well, I was never really going to take that action in the first place. But when you make them or try to compel them to do something, they, they don't really have that face saving uh, option. And then there's also elements that I think make it so interesting to study, such as increasing your defensive capabilities. So you kind of protect yourself if deterrence might fail, and in a sense, actually strengthen deterrence because the other side might realize that their efforts could be sort of denied or shut down, that they won't even achieve the objective, even if they would want to go forward with it anyway. I think about it, so I'm a new, relatively new dad with uh, about a one-year-old, and of course, I don't want to actually punish a child that young that they don't know what, what is right or wrong. But when you're thinking about child-proofing your home and sockets on the wall, I do think sometimes about the concept of denial where I have to sort of convince my son that he, it's not even worth going after that. I'm going to pick him up and I'm going to move him somewhere else. And after a while, believe it or not, he starts to remember that that pathway isn't going to play out. And it's just kind of a humorous way to show how, which is that I think it really helps to organize and clarify how we interact with other people. And I think that it can be very powerful to consider the two key attributes of deterrence, which are 
capability and credibility. Do you actually have the, when, when I'm gonna convince someone that, that it's not gonna be worthwhile to take an action, is that true? Uh, and have I communicated that correctly? And have I shown through my past behavior that I will follow through with what I've communicated? So I love those persuasion aspects, the communication aspects. I think it has endless facets that are really great to study. Yeah, that is so fascinating. That's a really interesting, you know, applicable analogy of your, uh, your child. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier uh, about how we're no longer in the Cold War. So what was, how was deterrence used in the Cold War? And what was its use there? Well, I think it's instructive to remember that the Cold War actually began with an instance of what I described earlier as compellence. So if you think about the bomb dropped at Hiroshima, it really was a communication to the Japanese by the United States that more will follow if you don't surrender. And so I would just remember that that, that was a very harrowing and tragic use of compellence, but it was a form of communication. And it led into the Cold War into what was artful, I don't know how you describe it, but the awkwardly named Mutual Assured Destruction or MAD, because it was mad to contemplate that both sides in the Cold War really provided for their security by threatening the, the other side's existence. And that I would describe as direct deterrence where both sides successfully for many decades prevented attacks on their homeland through the threat of destroying the adversary's homeland. Now, was that necessary? Did either side really want to attack the other side? These are questions of deterrence that can never really be answered. But I think the better way to answer your question about the Cold War was not just the successful functioning of direct deterrence, but the far more complex and sometimes less successful exercise of what was known as extended deterrence, which was protecting allies. And that's where you get into, I think it's, it'll be a good segue to discuss the post-Cold War because what was very unusual there was the United States and the Soviet Union to some extent, but really the United States trying to protect its allies in Europe. And the challenge there was how to credibly communicate a notion that the United States would risk its own survival for that of allies. And there was some quote that I have, have in the book that was actually not with uh, Europe and the Soviet Union, but was with, was with regarding China. And it was a, a Chinese military strategist who um, I think said something like, at the end of the day, the United States cares more about Los Angeles than Taipei or something like that. And what was interesting in the Cold War is many, many theorists tried to square that circle. How can we make sure that the Soviet Union with far superior conventional military forces wouldn't overrun Europe? And one answer was this sort of tripwire technique, which was to post soldiers, US soldiers through NATO in Europe as a commitment technique and to say, look, we know United States that you know, Soviet Union, that we are probably not going to be willing to risk the United States uh, for Paris or, or whatnot. But you, if we make it so that we sacrifice soldiers, you will put us in a situation where we have to respond. Now, did that work? 
I would say yes and no. There are many examples, and this is what developed um, what was known as sort of the stability-instability paradox, where there was high-level stability, where the Soviet Union wasn't going to overrun all of Europe. But as many in Eastern Europe will remember, the Soviet Union did take over and, and have coups in Hungary and Czechoslovakia and, and invade Afghanistan and everywhere else. So it was not as though deterrence locked everyone down and no one took any aggressive actions whatsoever. So I think the Cold War was an example of direct deterrence operating successfully and extended deterrence operating in a far more area of gray of success and failure. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, speaking as in a, in a Cold War-esque situation, what are some flaws or risks in deterrence strategies between, you know, before we get into rogue states, similarly powerful and large nations like the U.S. or the Soviet Union or as even the Cold War? Well, I think this was one of the most disturbing aspects of going through my research was reading about all these close calls and potential failures of deterrence in the Cold War. So, when I discussed about the tripwire being a commitment technique of posting troops in Europe, there were other commitment tactics that both sides used that were far scarier. And one that came to light, it was so interesting to read about, there were sort of these conferences of people that were involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis that came together years later and they said, well, what really was it like back then? And apparently, the Soviet Union had pre-delegated some launch authorities to certain Soviet subcommanders, and there were, now whether you believe them or not, who knows, maybe they're just kind of telling old war stories, but there, was, there were some stories that at the, at the time when the, these Soviet subcommanders weren't aware what was happening above the waters, that they thought, well, maybe we need to do something about this and maybe we don't even know it, but we've already lost the Cold War and we need to be that we're the last ones that can give that that final strike. And so I think that these commitment tactics can be double edged swords. They can kind of cut both ways and they can change the ability for both parties to have control over their actions. In the book, I often come back to this analogy of the game of chicken, where two drivers are sort of heading towards one another. And this is, I don't know if it was popularized in the movie Grease or something where like the whole, why it's called chicken is someone chickens out and swerves at the last second. And the best, I, I kind of try to adapt that analogy to explain some of the failures, potential failures of deterrence, which is a really good way to show how serious you are in that game would be to rip the steering wheel out of your car and say, look, Sebastian, I know you seem like a tough guy, but I literally can't swerve, so you better. And at first blush, you might think, wow, that is super smart. But what if Sebastian's read my book and he's stripped out his steering wheel and we both barrel towards one another? It's gonna to lead to disaster. So commitment techniques are tough. The other kind of adaptation to that analogy I give is um, the rationality of irrationality. So do I, uh, show up to that game of chicken swigging uh, a, a bottle of vodka or something and make you think, wow, Derek might not actually be able to swerve even if he wanted to. And again, what happens if both sides do that? What happens if one side has medical conditions that the other side doesn't know about and actually would want to swerve but uh, falls asleep at the wheel or, or can't? So these psychological effects, this, this notion of 
groupthink and wishful thinking that pervaded instances like the Bay of Pigs. Um, there's so much literature that has been written about the fact that at the end of the day, deterrence is a psychological phenomenon and lots of people can convince themselves, they can exercise defensive avoidance where they convince themselves that everything's okay, that they will be fine, that their adversary will back down and people can just be wrong. And so I think those are some of the flaws we saw um, that uh, you just, th thankfully they never played out in horrible ways, but um, you just never know. There were examples of the uh, Soviet uh, uh, missile launch warning system mistaking, uh, mistakenly detecting what they thought was a, a launch. And if they hadn't gotten through to the United States in time to clarify that it was a bug in the system, who knows what would have happened. So you just get in this uneasy feeling of, it just takes one instance to go wrong. That's what's frightening about it. Like everyone thinks, oh, do you know, why would anyone ever attack someone knowing that it could lead to their destruction? And once you study the Cold War, you realize, there was a lot of close calls. And that was with uh, two countries that didn't really have too much of a direct ax to grind against one another. That's what got me scared about the rogue state element where there is a lot of direct conflict, a hot war is going on, not a cold war. That's when things start to, start to feel very scary. Yeah, I, I really loved that chicken analogy because it's so fascinating how generally, you know, in basically all theory I've read, you know, removing options is never a good thing. But somehow in this case, removing options somehow gives you the advantage against your opponent. It's so fascinating. That's the paradox. Uh, it really is. I think it was popularized in uh, Dr. Strangelove, the, like the doomsday device that would just kind of go off no matter what. And that was also just, yeah, stripping away the options where you basically tell the other side, look, I'm not in control anymore because there's this concept in deterrence of who has the last chance to avoid disaster. And if you can put someone in that position, then they really would be crazy to follow through with it. But then the game becomes how to avoid being put in that place. And that's when you put in those doomsday devices to say, look, I'm, I've, already, I've already relinquished that. I literally can't take the last step. So now it's back to you. But not to belabor the point, what happens if both sides put that in place? That's, yeah. that's, what, that's where it gets kind of like Princess Bride-like um, where, do I, I think that you think that I think and everyone, that, that's, that's lovely turns, but kind of maddening. Yeah, um, it's, it's almost like the, uh, the prisoner's dilemma. And I remember, um, this reminds me, there was a game show in the UK called Golden Balls, where you would choose split or steal, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like the prisoner's dilemma. But, you know, if, every, if both sides chose steal, no one gets anything. If one side chose split, one side chose steal, one person gets it all and you just choose split they both get equal. And there was one episode where um, this man, and it's on YouTube, it has had like a ton of views from, um, you know, economics people. And one man says, you know, I'm going to steal. I promise you I'm going to steal and I'll give you half at the end. But essentially the other man is put in the position of thinking that he has to split because otherwise he just gets nothing. It's worth, mm -hmm. it's worth nothing to him at that point. And he ends up splitting and they ended up actually both splitting. The man didn't steal, 
because that was the only way he could guarantee that he would know what the other person would do. Yeah, there you go. Look, there are, there's endless literature on actually computerized artificial intelligence strategies of this tit for tat game uh, solution to the prisoner's dilemma where supposedly the best way to handle these type of situations is to kind of respond in kind once someone else defects to you and you try to cooperate, but the second someone burns you, well, you don't let that stand anymore. And I actually haven't followed it in the last few years, but it gets messy really quickly because as you said, you can, you can communicate that, but and let, I mean, who, whoever knows, like as that guy just showed on the Brit on the game show, then they, it, they, they still haven't, there's very little way that they can kind of guarantee that they've locked that in. So that, that's what, that's what is so fascinating about it. And that's why you get this notion in the Cold War, the concept of brinksmanship is that everybody is, it's like playing some absurd game of poker. I don't even know what to say. There's bluffing and that person bluffed. And because uh, what, what if the other person had said, no, I'm doing this. Well, how do they resolve that? So it's, it's, it's pretty crazy, but uh, somehow I guess we find a way. Yeah, that is so interesting. Um, anyway, so now getting back to the question of deterrence, um, and more more specifically for rogue states, is deterrence still applicable against rogue states, and how do differences in size and commitments change you know, strategies of deterrence? I think the answer is that and this may be unsatisfying, but it depends whether it's still applicable. I think the answer is almost certainly yes in terms of an unprovoked attack by a nation state. And so can I promise that? No, of course not. I mean, who knows what's happening with Kim Jong-un's regime and whether there could be some type of complete out of the blue attack, I don't know. Um, I will say that even in that scenario, it, deterrence does place a lot of faith on what is known as the rational actor hypothesis. And I think that, so the direct attack, probably yes, but this notion of possible transfers to terrorists, would a, would a country ever take the risk that it would never get traced back to them? So it, it's kind of a direct attack, but through a proxy, I don't, I, I, it's hard to say, and I try to delve into that a little bit. I think the more interesting issue that is really the heart of the book is in terms of a regional conflict. So not a direct attack by like North Korea on the United States, but a, a local offensive. And that's where asymmetries of interest come into play. And that's why the book has the title that it does, which is that deterrence can be flipped on its head and used against the United States. And I think when people first saw the, the, the book and the, you know, the subtitle, Rogue States and the Proliferation of Weapons of Mass Destruction, it was kind of like, well, wait a minute, the United States is you know, the strongest military in the world. Why, why is this even an issue? And it's an issue because of asymmetries of interest. And the fact that in a paradoxical way, the United States having such massive conventional military superiority could only force one type of response, which is like, well, there's no way, just thinking in the heads of a potential adversary, there's no way I can compete with the United States on normal ground. So I have to look to, to different, different strategies. And so that middle ground of um, could I still try to get away with a local conflict that I care about way more than the United States? Um, you still might think, well, why would they ever roll the dice on that? 
Um, but things become more complicated when you have to say, well, why would the United States roll the dice on some trivial local conflict? And that's the asymmetry that makes things, um, that's what makes it very, very unclear. Um, and I will say the last point about you asked whether it's applicable against rogue states. I do think it is. So I gave the example of a, a local offensive by the, and by the way, I, I mentioned this in the book, but I know rogue states is an awkward term. I, I kind of have a little disclaimer about it in the book. There's no easy, we've kind of moved beyond that. I don't, I don't know. And there's so many kind of weird phrases like axis of evil and whatnot from, from back in the day. So don't read too much into that, but just whatever country that is out there, the local conflict, I think, has the asymmetries of interest aspect, but the really tough one, which maybe is a segue to talk about a couple of the historical examples of the book, was when a large state like the United States is actually attacking the small state, presumably for disarmament purposes. Now there, I would say deterrence is very uncertain because you sort of are backing that country or that leader up against a wall, and that person may very well be willing to sacrifice uh, his or her country uh, to avoid that type of humiliation, takeover, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. So I would say the the answer depends on whether you're in one of those three scenarios. Gotcha. Yeah, and and that is a perfect segue to the next question, which is um, what lessons can be taken away, you know, for a specific point, uh, which is the military involvement in Iraq about deterrence and deterrence strategies. So it's remarkable that now we here we are 20 years, 30 years later from Desert Storm um, and almost 20 years from Iraqi freedom. It's, it's, a, it's a long time ago, but when I was researching back in the early 2000s, there was a lot of information that was coming out on the military operations of Desert Storm in 1990-91. And I think that the, it was notable for several failures of deterrence. And this, again, is a little bit dusty now in people's memory, but uh, Desert Storm, of course, was in the aftermath of Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. And that initial invasion was sought to be deterred by the United States. We basically said, it's not that we couldn't see sort of massing troops and, and everything else, and we tried to stop it, but failed. Because this is the second scenario I mentioned on how deterrence functions with uh, smaller powers, the one about the local conflicts. And I think that Saddam Hussein at the time thought it's not worth it for the United States. He was wrong. And it was worth it for us. He tried to convince us that the costs were not worth the benefits and the United States <laughs> respectfully disagreed. And, then, and it, then it moved forward from there. The United States itself failed to compel Saddam Hussein to leave. It's not as though there wasn't a discussion. It's not as though the United States just started bombing immediately. We tried to roll it back and it did not work. So we tried to say, look, you stay put, X, Y, and Z is gonna happen. That is exactly a statement of deterrence. And Saddam Hussein basically tried to do the same and deter us and basically said, look, maybe I have chemical weapons, maybe I don't. Maybe I use them, maybe I don't. That threat also failed. The United States said, okay, well, try us. We'll see what happens. And they went forward anyway. And we, the United States, threatened Saddam Hussein, said, don't you dare use those chemical weapons and, and don't take other actions. And the other failure of deterrence was Saddam Hussein 
uh, went ahead and set Kuwaiti oil fields ablaze and attacked U.S. allies, took some steps that in hindsight, if you think about it, were, was just shockingly brazen. And then I would say, and this is where I just think this case study is very interesting because people were just hurling threats left and right, back and forth, was there were finally some successes of deterrence at the end. And I would say, even though uh, it became less clear uh, 10 years later whether Iraq had nascent nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons, it's pretty clear that he had some chemical weapons at the time and it appears that he was deterred from using those at the, at the time. And most significantly, although it's interesting that um, Bush Sr. felt that it was a mistake, the United States was, and I analyzed this a little bit, because there were other reasons to not press ahead, some conventional reasons, but the United States was deterred from invading Baghdad. Hussein stayed in power. He threatened, he kind of upped the threats beyond tried to roll weight, which the United States did successfully. And I would describe that as a success of that third version of deterrence I mentioned, which was the United States kind of trying to overthrow a state. And in at least in that instance, in Desert Storm, deterrence worked. So, and then, and then 10 years later, I mean, it's not worth discussing too much because only to point out that there, perhaps, and it was such a messy circumstance with all of the arms inspections and everything else, but Iraq was unable to deter the United States invade, from invading. And some would argue that it's because of the disarmament that had taken place, which kind of gave the lesson to other regional powers, maybe we need to have more in order to stop that outcome from happening, more than just sort of some possible sarin gas missiles and other uh, chemical weapons. Maybe we really need nuclear weapons and that would hold the United States back from invading. Gotcha, yeah. So earlier you were mentioning um, terrorism, potential handoffs to terrorists. Um, and I think it might sort of make sense to digress into a little bit about rogue states and what makes a rogue state that difficult term. Um, but my general question here is what are so-called, you know, rogue states, potential relationships with and use of terrorism and can that be countered? And I mean, I know it's hard definitionally with rogue states, but what, what is that? Um, what is that relationship there? Yeah, it really is difficult to pin down because, and it's also so political right now, because especially in the Middle East, I mean, you have arguably in, in some people's minds, states that are being led by uh, terrorists. I don't want to delve in, into that, but I mean, you have very complicated relationships with Hamas and, and others uh, that, get, that get difficult. What I will say is, I think that the relationship, I think North Korea can be an interesting lens to, to think about. The United States was always very fearful that North Korea was a serious proliferator of nuclear technology and it, where it was willing to kind of help some nation states develop their uh, nascent programs, would a country like that be willing to share information with terrorists or God forbid bombs themselves if the price was right? And 9-11 really changed uh, George W. Bush's uh, feeling about deterrence. And the prospect of coordination between so-called rogue states and terrorists was what led 
that Bush administration to focus on preemption and really to reject deterrence. Under the notion that because it kind of brings these concepts we've been discussing full circle in that because you can't be certain that deterrence will work and the feeling was if it was ever not going to work, it would be with terrorists because the whole notion was, I mean, especially in an age of suicide bombers, they're already showing a willingness to kill themselves. And so there was this concept of nothing left to lose. And so the only thing that was stopping a terrorist nuclear attack was the lack of means to do it. And so that's what really led the United States to feel like it had to basically adopt a philosophy of we can't be safe anywhere until we're sort of safe everywhere. And that's a very scary proposition when safe everywhere means basically everyone who might pose a threat to us needs to be disarmed. And so that, and especially if you take it the next level and say, we have to make sure that anyone who might give weapons to terrorists have to be disarmed. So that's the kind of rock in a hard place where is there a lot of evidence of rogue states giving sort of weapons to terrorists? I mean, certainly conventional weapons, yes. There's plenty of evidence of that. Thankfully, I don't think that we've seen many instances of weapons of mass destruction going to terrorists, but I would say certainly not for lack of interest by those terrorist organizations. And that's what's scary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and going back to another uh, more specific example, you mentioned North Korea. How has North Korea's development of nuclear weapons affected its foreign policy? You mentioned how somehow um, some countries thought it might make sense for them to develop um, nuclear weapons. And how has North Korea's development of nuclear weapons affected its foreign policy and its dealings with the U.S.? You know, has it helped? What has it done for them? Well, that is a complex question. I would say at the face of it, from a security standpoint, I don't think anyone, they may not want to admit it, but I don't think anyone could doubt that it has helped North Korea. The nuclear weapons capability for what it is, and I know that's kind of a complicated subject, what exactly do they have, how much do they have, buried where, no one really knows. It's that uncertainty, but coupled with some credible demonstrations of capability, like the tests they've done over the years, coupled with their reputation for irrationality, like we discussed before, that really has effectively deterred the United States from pushing for disarmament by preventative, preventive attack, which certainly, as I discussed in the book, had been thought about both in 1993-94 uh, and, uh, and then later. It was a very close call. The United States really thought about it. Now, again, I think that if you interviewed these leaders, Many of them might say, oh, no, 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 we weren't deterred. We just felt that it wasn't worth it. And I, I maybe take them for their word at that. All I know is that it's a scary as an all else uh, relationship, a bilateral relationship, that I think that if when you, when you ask some of these people, they kind of wish that they had made the other decision in 94, because we do have this proverbial sort of Damocles sort of hanging over us now would North Korea ever risk its regime's survival? That's the first category that I mentioned, the kind of attack out of the blue. I think not. And thankfully, here we are a few decades in where it, it hasn't happened. 
Um, but when you follow the relationship between the United States and North Korea, so you had that initial 93-94 um, impasse where it was a close call. By 2005, when there was another impasse, North Korea's capabilities had progressed. They had shielded a lot of their weaponry. It was underground. It was very protected. The U.S. had even less leverage. That coupled with the conventional war capabilities North Korea has always had to basically rain fire on South Korea and Seoul really made any type of attacks unthinkable. They were probably not going to succeed, and they were going to yield devastating consequences, even conventionally, not even to think about the possibility of a nuclear weapon. But it still led to, and this discussion waxes and wanes, but it still led to lots of discussion about missile defenses because, boy, if we could defang that threat and the kind of the possibility of of North Korea making that last ditch effort, if we made it so that they thought that that wouldn't work, well, maybe we'd have a more free hand in North Korea. But the conventional situation there just was never approximated Iraq. It was never going to be a type of uh, Kuwait repulsion situation. It was never going to be the same as Baghdad. And my short answer to your question is I think they have very much communicated a credible threat that they would go down with their state. And I don't think that any US leader would take that lightly trying to disarm North Korea. Now, the last thing I'll say is, has that helped North Korea beyond defending themselves from a security standpoint? I'd say sadly, no. And I think that is sad for their people and their country um, that they have, I don't know that it's benefited them. It's kept, it's kept the United States at bay and it's deterred us. Um, but, and I would say there's been thankfully little evidence that North Korea has been at least too aggressive in exporting its technology, but boy, I don't think it's helped them. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so now I'm going to the other side of deterrence. Um, what are counter proliferation strategies and what do they look like and have they been effective? I discuss a few in the book, and I will preface it by saying that, unfortunately, they all have not been very effective, but that's partly because they're just hard. There are, as we've been discussing, there are a lot of reasons for states like North Korea to desperately want to develop these technologies. The same goes for Pakistan vis-a-vis -vis India. When you're in a life and death situation, you don't want to rely on the sort of goodwill of your adversaries. So let's just put that in perspective of why this might have, these things have failed. They're just very hard. And I'll just ping through them really, really quickly. I discuss them further in the book. You start with export roles. Look, if this technology doesn't flow around the world, then you don't have weapons of mass destruction in the, in the hands of, of rogue states. That's certainly no help anymore with North Korea, but it is still very much a live issue with other countries that from time to time give lip service to possibly wanting to develop weapons. You hear Saudi Arabia talk about it from time to time. You hear Taiwan discuss it because they feel like they're under the microscope with China. So I am not an export control expert. Uh, back when I was researching this, it certainly felt like the non-proliferation treaty was challenged, if not broken. I do think that there's been a lot of uh, improvements in, in some areas but export controls is a tough one. 
equally tough, but it, when you think about counterproliferation, I alluded to this with the North Korean situation is missile defenses. This gets discussed time and time again. And I know that there are, I, I, I'm not an expert in this area either. I know there's been advances. It's this concept almost of like hitting a bullet with a bullet in terms of a, of a missile in the sky that you're gonna launch one and, and, and hit it. And you sometimes hear about successful tests, but everything that I studied back when I wrote the book and that I've learned about now makes it seem like it's a very technologically complex task that even if the United States succeeded with, could be bypassed in a number with some other counter uh, strategies. And so it started when I read about it, it started to feel almost like a Maginot line defense, which is like it felt very good, but then all of a sudden all you have to do is do an end run around it through like cruise missiles or some other ways that you kind of attack and all of a sudden, this technology that's cost you billion, untold billions of dollars, perhaps not well spent. So very briefly, the other two uh, that I, I think have been a bit more successful. Um, the, next, the third one is that I, I discuss are passive defenses. So really showing that even if deterrence fails, maybe you could minimize the damage to that. Now with nuclear weapons, perhaps there's not as much you can do, but certainly with chemical and biological weapons, equipping our troops with various defensive technologies. I do have to say though, Sebastian, like we're recording this in the midst of the, the COVID pandemic and at least from a base sense of how we're being able to handle a bio threat, I, I think that the risk of a bioweapons attack and how the, whether the United States is equipped with passive defenses for that, I, I feel like our reality speaks for itself. And I certainly hope that we improve that because I do think relative to missile defenses, there's this phrase that some of these passive defenses will get more anti-bang for the buck. Like you can really um, protect yourselves in a, in a lot better way than trying to uh, handle these missile defenses. But, you know, there's strategic experts that probably know more than me about whether missile defenses really are worth it. Um, and then look, I think the last one that the United States has investigated that maybe uh, at higher levels of classification than I'm aware of have had more success than I know, but there's counterforce efforts where you think about actually disarming various states and there's tunneling bombs and other, other things that people have tried to develop. But at least when I read about that in the crises that I investigated, the cat and mouse game in that area favored the people trying to defend their weapons rather than people trying to attack them. So those are a, a handful of, I'm sure there's others out there, but those are a handful of ones that I analyzed. And I think some of them show promise, but um, they are, they're certainly no panacea. Gotcha. Yeah, I, it's funny that you bring up the, um, the current day with COVID um, because some language that you used in the book that I thought was interesting, which is that you, is you mentioned a global quarantine of nuclear weapons. But I think it is an important thing to talk about regardless of the uh, interestingness of the use of quarantine. But what will a global quarantine of nuclear weapons look like and how can it be made feasible? So I discussed this at the time, trying to reference a real focus that I thought did have promise, which was trying to intercept the transfer of, of weapons. And it kind of originated from a, there was, I think it was in FDR's time, I forget exactly, I'd have to, have to look it up, but there was kind of a regional quarantine, I think on the high seas is, is where it came from. And I kind of leveraged that concept to basically treat weapons of mass destruction as international contraband. 
And what I propose in the book, and I know it's a little bit pie in the sky, but the problem that I saw with the transfer of weapons is that we have this international shipping system that allows people to have kind of complete sovereignty over their ships and they can't be searched. And on the one hand, I'm definitely a believer in sovereignty. I don't think people should be boarding ships left and right. Like we need to respect everybody's, um, I guess, privacy and whatnot. But on the other hand, when you're dealing with the prospect of weapons that can destroy entire cities being shipped around, I did talk about at least thinking about a regime where you'd set up a system where you'd have some type of uh, regulatory authorities that would uh, have some standards of proof before boarding a ship, and that if they were wrong, would have some type of compensation system to benefit the people so that you you were at least you had to put your money where your mouth was and that you couldn't just kind of willy-nilly go around and board everybody just because you were you had the strength to do it which is i think what everyone is fearful of that the united states would get or others would get into this situation where we'll just kind of run amok and so i i know that that's a, a long shot but the quarantine notion was really trying to focus on the proliferation of these weapons, recognizing that in situations like with North Korea, that ship has kind of sailed. The, the, the notion, it almost, I have to tell you, for someone who's studied this very deeply for a few years and then now has watched it from the sidelines for a while, the number of times that we kind of, the deja vu aspect of thinking that North Korea is going to just disarm itself, I guess you kind of have to make the argument, but I I can't really fathom that happening. I don't think that anyone, if you put yourself in their shoes, would would do it. Um, and I know that there's this notion that, oh, well, sanctions will eventually drive them to the table, but there's some quote from the father of the Pakistani bomb that was basically like, we'll eat, eat grass until we develop the nuclear weapons. We'll do whatever we have to do. and I think the same applies there. So I don't mean to be pessimistic about that, but I, the, my focus on the quarantine was derived from trying to capitalize efforts and focus efforts on the area of the problem that seemed like it was the most successful. You're not gonna necessarily pry into North Korea's underground bunkers, but maybe you could, and we have kind of uh, brought technology to bear on the transfers, which are a lot harder to hide. You can have tunnels under um, Pyongyang or something, but you can't tunnel all the way to Pakistan. <laughs> like you have to kind of go above ground at some point. And so I really, uh, and I think the United States and others have done this, uh, focusing some technologies on borders and shipping and whatnot felt like it made a lot more sense. That's the point. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. That feels, of course, so much more feasible. Um, one last question, uh, which is finally speaking to a younger audience. How do you see issues of weapons of mass destruction and rogue states affecting policies and people in the future? What should young people be concerned about and you know, what can they do? It's a really good question. I find that in this area, it's very easy to almost throw up your hands in despair and think, well, these are interesting thoughts, Derek, but you know, what can I do about it? 
And even, I even wonder about that. I'm sure even some of our foreign policy leaders wonder what they can do about it. I'll say this. I do think, especially for a younger audience, learning about and following foreign policy and at most, most importantly, voting. Voting for leaders who take the right philosophy around some of these issues. And let me just briefly explain, because I talk about this at the end of the book. A lot of what we've been discussing can feel pretty depressing. And we're talking about game of chickens and all these uh, states that are trying to destroy one another. And it's grim stuff that we're, that we're talking about. And as I really researched this, I kind of came around to the point that deterrence is scary and that the best strategy is promoting peace so that we kind of have to roll the dice of deterrence as few times as possible. Like I told you how the Cold War, like we made it out and thank God we did. But um, what really came to mind, there was, and this is sort of a grim quote, but it's still applied. There was um, some IRA leader who threatened Margaret Thatcher and basically said, remember, we only have to be lucky once. You have to be lucky always. And he's kind of referencing bonds. We'll get and I kind of feel the same way with, with weapons of mass destruction, which is that I don't know that we want to play a game where we're threatening everyone all the time. And I really do think that it's the harder issues around nation building, peacemaking, and reducing the desire for weapons of mass destruction. Now, I know some states like North Korea that feel so beleaguered that no amount of olive branches being held out will change things. But when I think about relationships with like the United States and China, and I don't want to delve into like the, the politics. I know there's real conflict there. I'm not trying to pretend that we can just be buddy-buddy with, with every country. But I do think that voting for leaders that are trying to transcend some of those conflicts and um, bring sort of um, more stability to these regions that's the type of thing that younger people can actually have an impact on. And I think people underestimate the influence of their voting power. So I think maybe that's, as, as we head towards November, maybe a, a, a good note to end on. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was fantastic. Thank you so much. Sebastian, really appreciate it. And good luck with everything. Thank you.